if you're burned out, there's only really two reasons you could be burned out realistically. One is the business is just not going well and just like everything is on fire and that's just totally exhausting. That's very real. Like if you were just dealing with fire after fire after fire for a year or like nothing was working, nothing was clicking with customers, you should definitely be burned out. Like that would be human nature. But if you're burned out in any other capacity, it means you're actually just like not delegating the stuff you don't like to do and you're not spending enough time on the stuff that you are hopefully good at. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Well, this is a long time in the making, so I appreciate you both doing this. Totally. Can I give you two? But Mamoon canceled all the times, right? That wasn't me. I think Mamoon might have canceled one of the times. Okay, did you I cancel cold. once? Okay. You had a cold. I had okay. COVID. Okay, you had, yeah. you had COVID, and then maybe I canceled because of COVID the next time or something? Yeah. Yeah. Can I show you something first, just to like kick us off appropriately? Sure. So I've had these socks for- Wow. Vintage. Nine years? Yeah. Longer. There's a list of Silicon Valley companies that are on a hit list for me that all said no to giving me a job when I was coming out of school. Yeah. But I did get these socks yeah. in the interview process. Oh, wow. So it's like my thank you for trying. Like, thank what you was for the, playing. What was the interview for? Entry level, like cold calling. Oh, wow. Yeah, like I got rejected from probably 20 tech companies for just- You should blame Jim Herbold. B- BDR. You could, we, we didn't think you could cold call? <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember those socks? I actually don't remember those. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a bunch of pairs. Yeah, so those are probably- my, How old are these? These ten, are old, ten years, huh? yeah, yeah, easily. One of the things that struck me when I was coming in, when I was like hanging out in the lobby, when I was putting the Wi-Fi in and the Wi-Fi password was make mom proud, Yeah, is that you seem to be able to like not take the like whole building a company thing as seriously as I see many others take it. Like you just kind of, there's this air of levity about mm. you. Even in the like front desk, there's just like cool like- It's cool like, front desk. Yeah, it's a cool front desk. Has it always been that way? We've always had cool front desks, yeah. Well, you combine two different concepts, our front desk and then our core values. We have seven core values, mm. and one of them is make mom proud. And I actually had nothing to do with the wording of any of the core values. But early on, nearly a decade and a half ago, probably, we sat in a room and sort of said, what are the things that we think will define our culture as we scale? And we came up with seven things that, you know, I think some of them are very standard for any company, but then a few of them, we wanted our own little twist. So actually Make Mom Proud was one of the original ones to really focus on building a healthy collaborative culture where we can work together. But there was an, we had an earlier iteration, which was Make Mom Proud, there was an asterisk and then it said, unless she's evil, um, uh, because it was a little bit of an homage to um, Google's don't be evil kind of approach. But yeah, we have seven core values and they're actually pretty serious, generally speaking, but um, we try to have a little bit of fun with them. And like bleeding of your personality, like every time I spend time with you or listen to you anywhere, you just kind of are yourself super genuinely. You were in front of 50 CIOs at the Kleiner Perkins office. And I was like, this guy is exactly the same that I imagine him to be at Mamoon's house, like playing board games. Like I just <laughs> feels like it's the exact same. Yeah. Uh, That's was, a liability by the way, though. Was, so. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, totally. What do you mean? Oh, hundred percent. You're always getting in trouble for something. So, um, but, but life, life's short. So, but like, was it all like, how old were you when you started box? I guess. 19. When you were a 19 year old, did you feel pressure to be the like executive CEO Aaron? 
Well, I may have felt pressure, but I but would not have been, it would not have been possible to, I think, like adhere to the pressure. So there was a phase in the first few years of when we pivoted really intently on the enterprise where I wore like a suit most days to, to work just to embody the, like yeah. we are a professional institution. But other than that period, it's been sort of just, you know, whoever our general personalities are showing up. Yeah. I wore a button down in a blazer to the KP office when I first started for probably How'd six months. Not well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was good. They laughed like they made fun of me for yeah. it. But Mamoon and Ilya yeah. were like, dude, you, you don't. You that kind of works though. You're like, okay, that. you're going to be an infrastructure investor. So, or you can do biotech. So that's definitely not consumer. Mamoon, when did you guys meet? We met in the fall of 2007 for the first time. How? What happened? So I remember I was going down New Montgomery. This is like around TechCrunch Disrupt 2007. My friend Josh Stein, he told me about this young 20-year-old founder who I need to meet. His name is Aaron Levy. Oh, I thought that was going to be Zuckerberg. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know. It was Aaron Levy. And he said, you'd really like him. And I think we met soon after that, maybe like October of 2007. I met Aaron and Karen. Karen, his wife. (laughs) <laughs> Karen was our head of business development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we, we met in, uh, at the end of 2007 and then ended up investing that fall and the round actually closed in January of 2008. Honestly. Yeah. What was your first impression? Like, what did you think? You don't have to be honest, actually. We don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Can we edit honestly, that like, part out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I, you could lie if you want. Yeah. I prefer yeah, the lie, just lying myself, version. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, I, I thought like, he was the Zuckerberg of enterprise. I oh, really, yeah, yeah so, really. Aaron and Dylan started Box. You know, it's more of a consumer product to share files, music, right? Yeah, and business documents well, occasionally. Uh, yeah, occasionally. Yeah, yeah. You know, like stuff you use in school, like yep. you know, documents and spreadsheets, yeah, like stuff business like that. documents, business, business, very documents. important business, like LOIs, merger agreements, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that by the time and a little music on the side. <laughs> yeah, by the time we we started talking, it was really yeah. about the business. Like, yeah. So yeah. it was building a business software company, which was compelling, more compelling than competing with Apple and Google around sharing music files. Mm-hmm. Aaron had built something with a, a small team of engineers. It was out there in the wild. It was, from a usability perspective, it was a lot better, if not the best product on the market. And I think I looked at maybe a dozen or so other products mm. and it worked better. It was an extension of the, do you remember like Windows yeah. 95? Yeah. And what was like the, the most used application set of Windows 95? For me, it was like the file explorer, mm. looking for files to double click on and open up. And that similar notion of doing that inside of the browser just didn't exist even in 2007. And Box was actually doing that. So one of the first applications to go inside the browser seemed pretty obvious to me. It was like the file browser. Mm. And so that's what Box was doing. And it was very compelling as a user of the app. And then to further take that to the business use case of our files were moving to the cloud. It seems like such a far-fetched thing at this point to to think that your files are going to be stored in the cloud. At the time, every single file was still on your desktop. Mm -hmm. Every single file. Every single work file. And in order to share files, you literally had to like email it to people or you would FTP it. It was like of any size because attachments couldn't be bigger than like 10 megabytes, right? So it seems so far-fetched 15 years later, but that was the world we were living in. And Box was the first application inside of a browser that allowed you to share files in a browser. And you were at USVP? Yeah. Were you 
new there? Like how long were you there for? I was about two and a half years in. Two and a half years I in. Was, I was like low man on the totem pole. Yeah. I, was, I was an associate. And then when you met Mamoon, same question. Yeah. Like, what'd you think? What was the state of the business in at the time that you met Mamoon? Where was your headspace? And then when you all got together, I'm just curious if you remember any impressions. Yeah, so we had a pretty difficult time getting funded in that phase. We were just at the tail end of pivoting the business. So Josh Stein, as Mamoon just mentioned, was our first v- real VC. We had done some angel, we had some angel investors prior to Josh, but Josh led our Series A, a whopping one point five million dollars at I think a five million dollar post money. So um, back, back then you could just buy like you could just do buyouts of companies for a few million bucks. It was incredible. And you should, I mean, we were elated to have a $5 million valuation. <laughs> I mean, we had just dropped out of college like nine months prior and somebody was giving us a million and a half dollars. It's incredible. This was like a miracle to us. We spent kind of a year, you know, with that Series A, just trying to navigate what would our business model be. To Mamoon's point earlier, you know, it started as kind of this consumer prosumer tool. You could use it for business, but it kind of came out of our own just personal use cases around content and um, documents and photos and whatnot. We pivoted to the enterprise because we just saw writing on the wall. It'd be very hard to compete with Apple and Google. But in the enterprise market, there's this massive opportunity to move data to the cloud securely. And so we had a little bit of, I think, signs to show that there would be a business there. But as a VC, you know, looking at the business, we only had maybe a million or so in revenue. Yeah, 2007 was just under a million. Okay, so, so 900K in revenue. You know, a small portion of that was actually B two B. A lot of it was just consumer subscriptions. We had this you know, still great, the B two C stuff. Yeah, yeah. They're just like online credit cards. Yeah, we had this whole pitch that like you know we would have a freemium end user led adoption of Box in the enterprise, and then we would start to sell it to enterprises. But basically, you had to believe that this team of maybe a dozen people or two dozen people at the time was somehow going to take a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue in the enterprise yeah. and turn it into a real business at scale. And so it was kind of unbelievable. We got turned down by basically almost anybody we pitched, including Kleiner Perkins. Uh. At the time, Josh expended a tremendous amount of kind of capital on just like, you have to meet this team. And back then, you didn't even have to really reject people that politely. Like, <laughs> it wasn't like now where like people take screen grabs and put them on Twitter. I think back then they were just like, we don't like your business. I think maybe a couple people did this sort of like, it's not you, it's us, call us later. But for the most part... We we were just, people were just very clearly rejecting us, like yeah. just wholesale. We mostly got turned down in that process. I think attributed to Mamoon being maybe early in, in his journey on the VC side where, you know, maybe it, it clicked in terms of we were young, he was young, we were all trying to disrupt things, but Mamoon certainly gravitated to the idea. I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but I assume he had to like put his whole, you know, like probably Jerry Maguire, like put my job on the line because it was very clear from like meeting with the whole sort of management, all the, you know, GPs and whatnot that like nobody wanted to do this deal. Um, so I think we really had to fight for it. Nobody was like really excited. They, I think they were like, this is like the one favorite of Mamoon to let him, to let him invest in us or something. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, we closed the deal and it saved the business and sort of provided us capital to pivot. And then, you know, we were off to the races. I'm still caught up in the imagination of Mamoon Jerry Maguiring anything yeah. really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was my first investment as a, as a venture capitalist. And yeah. you were an associate? Yeah. And you took the board seat. I did. My partners were generous enough to let me take the board seat. I guess it doesn't matter now. Like how hard did you have to pound the table? Hard. (laughs) Really hard. That $3.2 million check for 23.1% 
had to fight really hard for that. Not with Aaron, but yeah. with, with no, no Aaron. You don't have to fight no. at all. You could have had forty percent for that. <laughs> I mean, literally, we had no ability to negotiate that one. And how long? What was your runway at that point? Before hours, I don't know, like uh, weeks, like imminent. weeks, yeah, imminent. We needed the money because back then, like storage was really expensive. We were giving it away for free, kind of a bad economic model at the time. We weren't at the right, you know, point in the cost curve of Moore's law and cheap yeah. storage, and so we were literally running out of cash. And so we would have had to, you know, do a very hard pivot if we hadn't gotten the raise done. Well, and in no way you're still like racking, stacking servers and stuff yeah. to get more capacity. Yep. Literally, like like when we would get VC checks, all we did was just wire transfer the money to data center people. It was very unsatisfying on that front. We got Josh Stein's first million and a half or so, and like the majority of it instantly went to this big storage array company. And so it was like cool because like FedEx showed up with giant crates of storage, but like the bank account never said like $1.5 million. Yeah, so. I always wondered why very little money was going towards salaries. And for the longest time, I think, Aaron and Dylan made 40K a year, like literally maybe half a decade. I think that was more just self-sacrificial, I would say, at some point. I don't know. It's like you either take 40K or you get more dilution. So um, <laughs> so it's it's all, I mean, it's, you know, the money's fine. the same. So yeah, yeah. So it's- Were uh, you married at that time? No. You no, were not? No. Okay. And- um, Yeah, no, I don't think it would be I was like 40K, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was a tough place. I mean, he lived in the office. In the office? Yeah. Yeah. Literally? At this time, yes, literally. Yeah. So not, they not, not like figuratively slept at the office. Like literally that I had a bed and that was my home address. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's a, a little loft. Yep. And Dylan did too? Yeah. The four co-founders, when we dropped out of college, we moved into this office building that was, I think only zoned for office, but basically like nobody checked the garage and we were in the garage. So Th- this is like a series B company that <laughs> where the founders were still living in the office. There's a lot of things that I would both not ever do again and definitely not recommend to anybody else. But like, so. uh, in fairness to you, at that point in time, would you not do that again, given all the same sets of circumstances? Well, if all the conditions were the same and I'm 19 and had you know no life, then totally. But like, <laughs> I can't sleep on a futon ever again in my life. I just have PTSD. So, And Mamoon, this is your first deal ever? This is your first yeah. check you've ever written? Yes. I'm sure your partners at the time must have stress tested you to say, hey, 17 other firms passed on this. What do you see that nobody else does? How long did it take you to actually have internal clarity before you knew that it was time to go push as hard as you could to get this thing done? I think actually internal clarity came very quickly right after I met with Aaron. Like, hey, this is a founder that I really want to work with. He sees a problem and he's articulated a solution Mm better than anyone else I've heard. And he's actually built it and has a vision of where this goes. To me, it was like the full package was there. You get a founder, he's got passion, he has a vision, he's executed. He has like a million dollars of revenue. What else do you want for an early stage check? Mm. So for me, it was just like, how do I convince my partners now to make this happen? So along with that comes, I had to do a lot of diligence. As an associate first deal, you over diligence it. You, I think I talked to a bunch of the competitive companies. I looked at like a whole competitive analysis, maybe played around with like 40 different products that looked like it just to make sure that there wasn't anything better out there. Mm-hmm. Funny little side note is that during that diligence process, one of our founders said, Hey, like there's this other company that's just coming up. It's doing something slightly different. It's sinking 
files from your desktop into the cloud. It's actually even called Box. It's like, no, it's actually <laughs> called Dropbox. And I think I just couldn't find anything on it. So uh, it was, okay, well, I like this one already. So we're going to go all in on this one. Locked <laughs> <laughs> out on that one. <laughs> Is Box and Dropbox about worth about the same now? They're a little bit more, but I think that probably the check that you would have written would probably proportionally have come to the same ownership, the same ownership or, or I mean, return. value, okay. you know, return. That's all that matters. Yeah, there you but go. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so over diligence, because again, it was my first investment. So during the diligence process, I think we'd committed to Aaron. We'd given you a term sheet. And then we actually paused our term sheet. You remember that? I have actually written out some of the bad memories of my fundraising process. So I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. So one of the biggest questions was, hey, like the cost of storage mm. is over time goes to zero. Completely rational argument that my partners made. Right. And the hyperscaler is not what they were called at the time. Like, you know, Google, Apple, Microsoft will drive this to zero and just give this away for free. Again, true. Like just around the time we'd signed the term sheet, there's an announcement in the uh, right. Wall Street Journal that Google Platypus is about to get launched. Platypus is just Google Drive. Didn't exist at the time. And I don't think it came out for another few years, actually. Like many years, maybe yeah, many two years. or three but years. But they announced it. They, they didn't announce it. It was just like a leak. Uh-huh. And that paused the whole process. Okay, well, we're toast. If Google announces this thing, we're toast. So we paused things. And I think I had to go do a lot more work around. Actually, I remember the analysis at the time I did was looking at all the different markets that Google played in, like all the different products where Google was not number one. Hmm. And I don't not think- Not a long list. It was a long- well, Oh. Yeah, it was only number one in search and everything else was not oh. like maps and okay. docs right. and everything else. Like Google was like two, three, four, five. Right. Only product it had in the market huh. that was number one and including, I think, video at the time. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, definitely video. Yeah. Because this uh, would be pre-YouTube maybe? It was right around the time of okay, YouTube. Okay. Yeah, maybe like pre-YouTube, okay. yeah. So in any case, I had to make the argument like, hey, like- Whatever Google does doesn't mean it's going to be just a huh. success. There could be a startup that could actually win. And so in any case, things went on. Uh, we ended up funding Box and got to work with. And this was in 08? This is January of 08. January of 08. What was the market doing at that point? It was great time to be an investor in the stock market, I think. So like it was bottoming out. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Like it, it, it was before. Was things, it before? Was that September or? That was September, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, things so were it was actually okay. fine. Oh, yeah. Things were fine. fine, actually. Okay, fine, things are yeah. fine. Yeah. But it, they got really bad. Yeah. Right, after, really, you, right after you invested. Yes. Yeah. Like six months after, it got extremely yeah. bad. Like the yeah. worst I've had in my career. Yeah. Did you both have an oh shit moment at that point? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much everybody yeah. had an yeah. oh shit I remember, moment. Do you remember Christmas of 2008? I do. Yeah. What happened? Well, we had to do some cuts, um, unfortunately, of the team. Like you grew the business after you got some money. Grew the business. We mm-hmm. thought everything was going to be on fire and ultimately had to do some cuts. And it was really kind of tough period at that moment because you just didn't know which, which direction the economy was going to go in. And so, you know, can you ride the thing out or do you have to go in and make some hard decisions? So that was, that was super tough. I mean, that was a, a big kind of moment of realizing like we're in a serious spot as a business and have to make these hard calls. How long before it felt, maybe obvious is the wrong word, but where it felt like this thing's not going to die? Did you reach some point, I'll let either of you answer this question, where you're like, all right, like we're going to have a real business here that's going to be enduring? Probably post-IPO. So, <laughs> I think you're kidding, but I'm not sure, actually. I don't even know. I, every day I, would, I come I in and I'm answer, paranoid. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You go for it. Yeah, okay. So I think 2008, nine. We could have died any day. Yeah. 
2010, even like until Rory did the round, the Series C, could have died any day. As an investor, I started to feel good about the investment, that it would not just completely lose capital in 2011. Okay. Yeah. So I think we went from one to two and a half to five million in 2009. So this is even in, in a really crappy yeah. macroeconomic environment. The business went from one to two and a half to five million. You know, not terrible. Right. And then I think the year after that, maybe like 10, 12 million. Yeah. So it kept growing really nicely, but you thought, you know, we thought we'd run out of cash. Yeah. Like, in weeks, months. And the periods between fundraising in those early days was almost two years. Like from the A to when you invested was almost two years. From the B to seemingly the C yeah. was in April of 2010. Two and a half to, years, yeah. Does that seem right? Yeah, we couldn't raise capital. We just couldn't. We, we did- Bridge round. Bridge round after bridge round. Internally, you did it. Yeah, and Josh. Yep. And then we had some debt from Steve. Yep. Yeah, Hercules. Hercules. My question is, it seems so gnarly and bad at that point, but like now that you have everything, do you ever kind of look back on that longingly? I don't know. Maybe question for either of you, but just do you miss that feeling of um, near death? Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's just not doing like things it. with a small group of yeah. people yeah. and feeling like you're still on the very early part of the ascent hmm. to the mountain. And there's just, I, I don't know. I just wonder if there's any nostalgia there. The nostalgia is purely the joy of getting to be hands-on and working with people super closely that you know you created the company with or early early hires. None of the we're fighting for our lives. I have no nostalgia for any of that because it's only fun to think about in retrospect that we survived at the moment. It was panic attacks and lots of anxiety and just the amount of people that had to walk me down from a ledge multiple times in a variety of capacities because we thought that like some new competitor launched one little feature that was going to destroy us. Like I definitely do not miss uh, any of those feelings, but the nostalgia of being in a board meeting and, you know, wrestling through with fun topics as, you know, a bunch of friends working through stuff. That's always fun. But yeah, none of the pain and suffering side is what I want to repeat. I would just add to that. I mean, there's a lot of tough times, early days yeah. for sure. Like I got to live it as my first investment because I was pretty much like, if Box and Aaron failed, I failed. Totally. I had no career in venture capital. Yeah. So I may have been, I wouldn't say more involved, but just, you know, I got to see a bunch of stuff along with Aaron and see how hard the, the whole team worked for years. And just like, but what I would add is that there was a lot of just fun and levity in the room. Even in tough times, these guys found a way to, you know, Although, laugh at each, laugh A lot at of that was Rory probably uh, to his credit. So, yeah. Just laugh yeah. at ourselves and just sort of, you know, Levy, levity, right? It's in the name. <laughs> it's in the name. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're going through the hell, yeah. basically, yeah. why was it the like near ledge experiences that you're having? Like, why? Yeah. Like, why is it you, you know, the person kind of like, how much were those two things colliding together? You know, like Aaron, the person, Aaron, yeah. the box CEO. I imagine there's something there. Um, yeah, hard to decouple that when literally living in an office from being like, well, I also have, I enjoy my own hobbies. <laughs> like, like you just, you don't have, you don't have any separation of who you are and the business you're fighting to build. So everything is like a total personal attack. And so, yeah, it, almost impossible to separate when you put your life into something like that. Question for both of you, but if an alien came Maybe they, they are here, but yeah. nonetheless, if an alien came and asked you, like, what is company building? Yeah. 
How would you describe it? I'll start with you, Aaron, and then maybe Mamoon. What is company building? Yeah. Like- um, I don't know if I have like a clever way of framing it. I mean, you know, you have an idea that you think should exist in the world that could be small or big, and you sort of put together the people and the resources and the operational ability to go and see that that idea come to life and sort of you just don't stop until that thing exists and you keep building on it. And, you know, over the years, it changes because of the scale and it changes because of what you have to do from a culture standpoint and a customer standpoint and new constituents like Wall Street all of a sudden. But the very active building almost doesn't change. And, you know, even to your point about the nostalgia of a small team working on you know an innovative idea, I think I'm constantly finding the new version of that at every stage. So right now it's AI, and and so you get to jump in, and it, you're doing company building all over again because there's a new initiative in the business that you want to go and kind of create out of whole cloth and turn it into something. So we're constantly repeating that process over and over again as we scale it, whether it's a new market we're entering, a new region, a new partnership, a new product idea, um, and it's just sort of never ending. Yeah, well said. I would just add maybe just you start with the North Star and then you have a set of ground rules and that could be your values, your mission statement. You try to live live by those. And then I think it's just a bunch of brick by brick, one foot after the other. I think once you, you know where you're trying to get to and you know how to live with a set of values and how, how do you treat each other, how do you collaborate with each other, then you go brick by brick. And I find that it's hard to short circuit these things. Can't just jump the gun and like make big leaps. That's where just like good old hard work comes to play. And I think that's company building to me. What does the acronym OFB mean? (laughs) Mamoon, I'll let you take that and maybe why uh, it could be relevant to Box. Yeah. So what it means is it stands for open for business. Uh And I remember, I think it was 2007, no, 2000, actually 2008, when I said it to Aaron, and I think you may have said it to, to Jim Herbold, who's our head of sales. And I think he fell in love with OFB. Yeah, has he said it? Oh, he lives by OFB. Oh, really? Herbold, I, oh, Herbold I, loves oh, OFB. Really? Oh, really? I just it. think about it as a you thing. I didn't know, okay. it, I didn't know it, it rippled. Okay. No, it just pretty much there. Okay. It stopped there. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so two pe- it become a meme for two people. Two people, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, it, it, what it meant for me was like, you went to a, a website, in this case, a business software website, and you looked at it and like, wow, like, these guys know how to communicate their value proposition, their pricing is clear, they're open for business. Mm. I think I sort of made this remark to Aaron, is like, <laughs> we don't look like we're open for business, Aaron. Look at these other companies, they're open for business. And I'm not sure if you hated me for that, but... I probably did. But then it, it, it stuck and it almost wouldn't make sense in 2023 because I think that it's like everything is fairly standardized in terms of best practices. So you have to like, trans, you have to go to archive.org and like look yeah. at websites in 0789. And yeah, there's a lot of software out there, which is just like, how am I even going to get started with this thing? It looks like either a project or it's impossible to navigate the pricing and learn more and talk to a sales rep. And so it was, it was I think, more of just like a, I mean, some of it was was the website, but like some of it was also just like, do you have a sales engine built out? And like, are you ready to go and scale this thing from a distribution and go to market standpoint? And so I think it meant, you know, it kind of eventually conflated a bunch of ideas. But, you know, now I actually don't entirely know how it gets used. I do think it's still relevant. Like, I still think that a lot of, in my opinion, 
founders are generally technical founders that we're talking to are building product for product's sake. Right. You know, because it's really interesting to them. Right. The problem that they're, that the technical challenge that they have rather than the solution that they're delivering for customers. I still see that all the time. Okay. Do you? Yeah. I think we say it all the time. He's like, this is a founder that's commercial or designer. You know, when we say designer, it's like you're designing a great product. Not sure if you're commercial, though. Mm, totally. And so that's the equivalent of OFB in 2023. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Can I read a tweet that you said that I love? And maybe we just get your reactions to it. It's not one of the really controversial ones. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> the biggest danger of too much venture capital is the <laughs> removal of constraints and masking of uneconomic models. It's very important to let customers determine if you have a viable business, in quotes, profitable revenue, not PowerPoints, funding rounds. I love the quote. I thought it's super timely as well. Maybe, could you expand on it? When did I do that? Do you have a date on that one? I think 2021. Okay. Yeah, which took you about 15 years yeah, to realize exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't <laughs> Why have, did you say that? Well, I wouldn't have said that uh, uh, during the yeah. actual fundraising yeah. process. Every time we raised capital after the Series C, <laughs> there was a cash flow break-even plan that came along with that funding round. Yep. And then you, you raise the capital and you're like, <laughs> the cash flow break-even got pushed up another two years. Yeah. The realization of profitability and cash flow it's break been even. A, it's been a weird <laughs> journey. Was that it's, been a weird, <laughs> it's been a very weird journey. I do feel bad for our series B through like D and E or D two, three, whatever we ended up calling it investors. Cause we were always only 18 months away from cash flow positive for every round that we did. Um, true story, true, true story. But um, now the good news is we finally did it and we'll generate a couple hundred, hundred million in cash this year. Thank you. But it, it definitely took us a while. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of in the tweet, so it's hard to, hard to even explain, but I do think that, um, I think that- like, we, Do you feel you got caught up in that a little bit too? Not to the extent I actually would have liked because it was painful raising those rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, we took on massive dilution. We didn't do it for survival. We did it out of greed of growth. That's sort of the essence of maybe like if there isn't any nuance in the tweet, it would be that like there's one thing where you have a bit, you have a model, it's working and you just want to fuel the top of the funnel with as much demand as possible because you know you're acquiring customers that will eventually be, you know, contribution positive and unit economic positive. And then it's just like, how many sales reps can you get? How much distribution can you get? And let's really kind of go after the market versus businesses where every single customer you get it's on the hopes that maybe there'll be another customer in the future that you'll get that's profitable, but the one you're currently getting is not profitable. And I think we were in an era of extreme abundance in the past you know, five years or so, let's say, in the venture market where you could build those kinds of businesses where nobody really was looking at like, okay, well, like, how would this thing ever converge on profitability? Because every single customer you're acquiring is like 30% gross margin or something. So you don't, you don't have any money left to run the business after you have a business like that. And, you know, for us, we were looking at a business at the time, which was no matter what minimum 70%, maybe maximum 80% gross margin, you know, kind of business with a certain LTV and stickiness from customers. So actually you just want as many of them as possible to show up because you know they're gonna be sticky and you know that they're gonna generate income at the bottom line over time. And then it's just about how much cash do you have to grow the business. So I probably wouldn't have done that much differently from a fundraising standpoint in the scaling years. I would have probably done some things differently in terms of what we invested in, how maybe efficiently we made certain decisions. But I do think a bunch of the decisions we made to go big, get scale quickly were important to our ultimate position that we got to, which is, you know, a billion in revenue now 20 mid 20s operating margin you know going on 30s so that was probably a necessary requirement to get to real scale to achieve that can i ask you a question yeah 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 oh yeah please all right so would you take 
35% a year guaranteed growth over a decade and not burning as much cash or rather have yeah. the chance of, let's say, 70 to 80% growth maybe for that same period of time burning hundreds of millions of dollars. The big question is what number are you starting with on that 35% versus 70%? So, because if you start at 30 million, if you start at 30 million, I, I don't know the math. The math the gets math, hard. I'll just give you the quick math. Yeah. 30 becomes 900 in yeah. 10 years. At 35% growth? Yeah. Wow. And then 30 becomes something maybe a lot bigger, but burning a lot more capital. Would you take the guaranteed 30 to almost a billion dollars in revenue? So many of these things are so dependent on what market we're talking about. So is the TAM all of productivity software? Is the TAM a vertical that you can kind of fully own? You know, the conditions of this matter because I don't know what- In a market that you have to be greedy. I think you got to rapidly grow in the early period, even if it means a lot of dilution. The things I would do differently would be I just would have made way more efficient decisions on, you know, what markets to enter when, like the sequence really matters of, you know, we probably could have saved maybe 20 or 30% dilution by just a different sequence of a prioritization. But for the most part, I don't regret the early, early stages of like hyper growth that we had to do to get to where we we're at. What do you think, Moon? What would you take? It really does depend back to Aaron's point. Like if you have to be greedy in a market and it is a first mover advantage, which means a lot when your customers perceive you as a market leader Mm -hmm. and you become the de facto solution, let's just take that for, let's say, Figma. If there were three other companies like it that could do the same thing as Figma, would they have gotten to the level of uh, scale they have now? And probably the answer is like, you know, they wouldn't have because they they had to move quickly to capture that market. And they actually did it pretty efficiently. It's almost impossible to grow at a moderate level in the early years because you'll get competed out. Yeah. So... Right. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like I think you can grow moderately at scale because now you've got all the customers, you have a brand, but if you grow moderately in the early stages, somebody's going to figure out like, holy shit, like there's an idea here. Somebody else will fuel the market and the venture. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of examples of companies that have grew rapidly and then moderately have just continued to grow and grow. And well, like of the grow hundred percent and that compounding. Yeah. And then just compound at 30%. You know, like I think that's lots, everybody. Lots of software businesses. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's, that's the that's SAP the, and. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, basically like there's only gonna be a couple of Googles ever. So everybody else is going to have to be Autodesk and Adobe and SAP and something else. So it is scary though, to Aaron's point, if you start intentionally slowing your growth rate down at some point, you do create the risk of getting competed away by somebody else who's just growing way faster and making that type of investment. Yeah. And I think that you just have to time that well. So you just can't do that too early in in your life cycle. So do you all remember, this is a question you've probably never thought about before, the toughest feedback that you've ever given to each other? Is there a time where you think back like, oh, that hurt. I can't can't believe you said that. I, I remember one piece. That I gave you or you gave me? You gave me. I gave you feedback? Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's that? I think it was 2009. Yeah. And you told me, dude, you have to invest more. Like, we're still your only investment. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're calling me too much. You're telling me we're open for, we're not open for business enough times. I need you to tell it to some other people. So get off my back it, about it. It did stick with me for really? a long time. It still does, actually. It's like, you, you know, you don't, you don't pull the trigger enough okay. on investments. Did that like prime you for Slack maybe or something? Was That's that like helpful it, feedback? It, it was helpful. Okay, yeah. okay. 
Do you remember? You remember the toughest feedback I ever gave you? I was probably all the open for business stuff. I mean, Mimum was a machine on the metrics and how we're scaling and do we have enough capacity and what's the LTV and all this stuff. And so I think over over those years, I probably was defensive on every every element that I got, but it was always it was always useful to hear. As the company was scaling, can you talk about what the ten person test is? Yeah, I think the theory is if there if you only had a team of ten people, you know, would you want this person on your team? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. We just don't use it as much these days. So I just want to make I sure. I thought it was a really interesting concept though. You know, sometimes you need these little mental tricks to, it's always hard to be like, okay, well, what is this person good at? What are they bad at? You want to be as objective as possible, obviously, in mm-hmm. evaluating people at, at any kind of scale. But like, sometimes it can just be really simple to figure out like what's a heuristic for you're in crunch mode. Your team is 10 people to solve, the, you know, run the business or solve a problem or whatever. Like, is this person in or out? Like, would you want this person or are there 10 better people? And like by definition, like it has a little bell curve dynamic to it. So like it only works as like a quick heuristic for thinking through like, would you want that person in a 10 person team? And, you know, whether that's for evaluating existing talent, who do you promote, who do you hire, all that kind of stuff, I think is a quick way to think about it. When you get to the IPO, what year is that? 16. 2016. So you're seven, eight years in? Yeah, eight years seven. In. Yeah. How many employees do you have? Do you remember? 1500 maybe 1500 i'm making like, that up yeah, yeah but like you're, you're like 1200 10 years in aren't you like you started in 2006 oh I, i'm sorry i thought you meant since the ipo sorry no no no, no. no. in the company we're then at, 10 years in at the ipo yeah 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 totally 10 yeah. years in thousand yeah. ish people yeah thousand ish people that must have been such a cool moment for you mainly because of the dream that you're promising employees to come work here like this is just a validation moment yeah it became very difficult around the IPO. Can you explain that period of time? And maybe if you have reflections to add on to it, I'd love to hear as well. Yeah, it's so idiosyncratic to our situation that I hope nobody repeats it. And so there's not that many lessons to be learned. Unfortunately, we filed to go public right at a moment when there was a a, a very specific SaaS-related valuation correction that had us going into an IPO process where our valuation was going to look very different. That actually is pretty much what anybody would deal with right now. But then the additional unique thing was when we filed to go public, you know, pertinent to this conversation, we were burning way more money than I think people realized. So everybody sort of saw the S1 and they're like, holy shit, like this company is spending a lot on sales marketing. And for us internally, we were like, yeah, duh, because we're acquiring customers that are going to be with us for a really long time. Like anybody would do that. But if you didn't understand our business model and you just looked at that and you were like, oh, well, like this could just be a total money losing venture because you're not doing the, the lifetime value calculation. It looked like a really kind of tough slog that we were in for. So both of those reasons led to a very prolonged, protracted IPO process that eventually concluded in us going public, but we had to get more efficient. We had to save some money, make the economics look a little bit better, raise some mezzanine kind of capital while we were filed. So it was a pretty complicated process, but fortunately one that very few companies should you know, hopefully have to think about. Yeah. Have you ever doubted your ability to lead the company at any given phase, whether it was five people or today at thousands of people? Has there ever been moments where you're like, am I still the guy for this job? I more doubt the, uh, all the objective business issues. I'm super paranoid on the business itself. Do we have the right product strategy? Do we have the right marketing strategy? Are we executing effectively? All that kind of stuff. 
I certainly early on doubted kind of some of my my abilities, but I think like it goes with the territory of being a founder that you have some kind of crazy ego complex of like, I can solve anything like, or, like, or else you just, you wouldn't even start the journey to begin with. I think because I feel like I know the things I'm not good at and then thus I'm, you know, fortunate enough to have people around me that are really good at the things that I'm not good at. An amazing co-founder in that respect that handles so much of our kind of core business operations, a chief operating officer that handles all of our go-to-market execution, you know, great heads of engineering or product over the years. So I think I've been able to complement the various lack of skills that, that I've had. I've learned over the years by just meeting various CEOs that like there's not really like one prototypical CEO profile, particularly a founder, you know, who's a CEO. I've met some of the most introverted, passive people being credible leaders and executors. I've met some of the most gregarious, charismatic, outward facing CEOs being credible at leading their organizations and building up companies. So I think this idea that you can kind of pattern match or sort of have these caricatures of what a CEO would look like or be like totally like when you actually just meet a a random selection of 30 CEOs, you just instantly that goes out the window. Like it doesn't matter what your own background is, as long as you have a team that is incredible that you can can hopefully convince to go and be pointed in the right direction. I totally agree. Enrique from Brex had a similar reflection where he was saying that all the CEOs that he would meet, it felt like they would read a lot. You know, like they were all voracious readers. And so he started reading a bunch because he was trying to emulate what he thought greatness looked like. And then eventually he realized, I fucking hate reading. Like, I I don't like reading at all. He under-indexed on the things that he loved to do and over-indexed on the things that he thought he should be doing because of what other type of CEOs he thought would do. Does that make sense? It does. And I think in a job like ours, i.e. CEOs, if you're burned out, there's only really two reasons you could be burned out realistically. One is the business is just not going well and just like everything is on fire and that's just totally exhausting. That's very real. Like if you were just dealing with fire after fire after fire for a year or like nothing was working, nothing was clicking with customers, you should definitely be burned out. Like that would be human nature. But if you're burned out in any other capacity, it means you're actually just like not delegating the stuff you don't like to do and you're not spending enough time on the stuff that you are hopefully good at. For me, the things that I really like to do and hopefully have some unique capability in is product and thinking through product and innovation and whatnot. And so I can just feel it myself. Like if I go a week or two, not having like really interesting product brainstorms or thinking through the future of the product or whatever with all the relevant people, then I feel like, okay, like I'm not getting the fulfillment of like why I wanted to build Box in the first place. But like you just self-correct for that. Like you rearrange your calendar, you make sure that you're spending time in the right areas. So I think like, you know, sometimes you do get this idea that there is this exact prototype of what a CEO should do. And to that point, like you should just suck it up and do all the things you don't enjoy. It's like, well, maybe, or maybe you could just hire great people that like to do those things that are really good at those. And then you can spend your time on the stuff that you love. And then there's obviously like, you know, requisite stuff of like culture building and some core operational things you just have to do for business success and survival. So I think that's maybe largely why I haven't had to run into existential kind of crises on that front. Yeah. But now we should get the truth if like I've ever said something to you about like, you know, differently. I don't know. But I was on your board for a long time, but and then wasn't on your board, which I think allowed us to just be have a different relationship. Yeah. Right. And I would say as a board member, you know, an investor with a financial stake, I think we always looked at like you are the leader of this company and we need to surround you with people who can help you succeed and thrive. And we did that when we brought on Dan Levine. Yep. 
right? He was just CEO. He worked at Intuit for many years, like great, amazing guy who's at the company for five plus years. Uh, eight. Eight years, right? And just an incredible partner to you, right? Yep. Yeah. So we did things like that as a board. And then since then, I would say like post board member status, I would say, you know, like you continue to have tremendous like passion for the full vision of Box over a long, long time period. And this is more as a friend of like, you know, like you stay at it, man. Gonna you know? try, gonna try. And it's like, uh, are you at the peak stock price close? You know, so it's like, keeps going up, you know, it's like, it's all good. <laughs> it's all, Profitable it's all good. cash flows, yeah. like. What's not to love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You guys think your relationship changed <laughs> after you got off the board? Like you could just be more, I don't know, friendly? Yeah, it's helpful when like your friends also can't fire you. Um, <laughs> like I, f- I feel like a, the relationship does adjust in a positive way. So like I'm not having to like, oh shit, if I say this one thing, <laughs> then I might see a termination letter next week. Yeah, so. it's, it's, you know, like you are a fiduciary at the end of the day, right? Yeah. When you're a board member, you represent all the shareholders of the company. And then if, if Aaron's like, you know, you're like, you take that into account. I mean, I certainly do. I think that's certainly does your, change your relationship a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned like the AI stuff is what's invigorating you now. Yeah. Although actually three days into it, uh, the, the Apple Vision stuff is pretty f-ing cool. So dude, I was actually, why do you say that? Yeah. I tried it. It's incredible. Why? I don't think we're looking at the consumer device right now. I don't know how quickly these generations of cycles go, but um, if you imagine the physics trajectory that you'd, Apple's just really good at, and it gets faster, lighter, you know, the battery you not, know, situation. Not so much cheaper, though. Yeah, uh, cheaper <laughs> will come with it, I guess, at some point. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, Moore's Law still will have some impact somewhere in the in the system. It's a like a completely revolutionary experience with technology. And, you know, I don't think you could wear it for 10 hours a day. But they've just nailed all of the issues that VR had previously. So when you look at the outside world, it's not like this grainy black and white CCTV thing. It's just like a high resolution, you know, video stream of the outside world. You don't have to move your arms around to grab things. You just look and you pinch. A lot of the core mechanics, the the software, the user experience. I've not. Did it feel like when you first used, I don't know, ChatGPT? Like, did it have the same feeling of, holy shit, well, d- different synapses, I think, fire. Like ChatGPT was like, how is technology, like how, how are the words, you know, appearing in the way that they are? Like, yeah, yeah. that's a different thing. Like this was more of like, when you've had the first, you know, interaction with, with let's say the iPhone, iPad of the, of just like, I didn't know that physics could do this. I didn't know you could just pinch a computer screen and have it zoom in and out. Like, it's like, they've just solved some really important HCI paradigms that would have been necessary for this technology paradigm to ever work. It's so hard to describe. You kind of sound like a crazy person, but when you see just a giant IMAX monitor in front of you with no degradation of anything else, like the outside world is not degraded because you can still see it right. and the resolution, the pixels are perfect in the thing in front of you. There's just, it's just like, you can just totally imagine like, why would you not wear it on an airplane to watch a movie or it's late at night you're working and you just instantly want a giant screen to work on all the industrial use cases are so obvious. Like, why would you ever like repair something again without a head-up display? How would that make any sense to not have a, a you know a real-time feed of of what you need to go do? So I think it's super exciting. It's like only marginally relevant to us. Like, I think you'll want to access your content and interact with it in new ways. But I just I'm excited as a consumer of the technology just to have one for you know a variety of things. Meaning, like company builder creator Aaron doesn't yeah. put on the headset and think, oh my god, this is like, how can I make this relevant to Box today? Oh, it does. I'm just saying, like, AI probably has a, a more pervasive dynamic to it. It's fundamentally like, okay, you have to figure out how is AI going to change how we interact with software. To their credit, 
when you put on Apple Vision Pro, they're not pitching that you have to change all of software. Like you just, you can use your current software and then there's other software that really gets enhanced by 3D. So it doesn't require you to be like, oh God, we got to pivot everything because we have now, we have AR, VR in front of us. Did you feel like that about when the ChatGPT stuff came about? That was more like, oh shit, like we have to all get in a room and figure out, okay, how's this going to change how we interact with data? How's it going to change how you produce content? How do you search content? How do you answer questions around information? It's, you know, completely new, you know, possibly technology paradigm that we have to build for going forward. And as this thing continues to compound and accelerate on the back end, how often are you changing your mind based on the ground (laughs) shifting underneath you? The rate of change was very high in like, let's say December to March and April. And then we actually had to make some final decisions on like some, (laughs) you know, like this is the crazy thing about the space is like, it's almost like scary to lock in architecture you know, decisions right now because you don't know if something's going to blindside you. Right now, I would say huge premium on flexibility in your architecture, huge premium on abstraction layers to underlying AI models, huge premiums on finding the appropriate ways to incorporate this that that are malleable in some way because I think we're, we as an industry haven't all gotten in a room and said, okay, when you interact with AI on a website, here's how it should look. Like we just haven't done that. We did that for obviously only organically, but we did that for social and we did that for a lot of the modern web experiences that we have today or mobile experiences. AI is just like, we're kind of six months into you know, what LLMs actually, you know, having real commercial appeal. And so I think we're in for like, are we going to use the internet and there's a chat bot in every website? I don't know. There's some pros and cons. It's not hundred percent obvious that that would make sense. You know, are we going to always be talking to an AI assistant? Do we want to type as much? Do we still want buttons to do things? Lots of questions right now. Yeah. Mamoon, you must also feel the same way from the investing side. Yeah. I think we could have three hours on this or 10 hours on this topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think just in a nutshell, though, it's it's a seminal moment in the history of technology. It's not just like, you know, NFTs and crypto from last year. This is like a, a true tsunami wave. It's much more akin to the Internet than it is even to the emergence of the cloud. Yep. So um, you I agree th- with that. hundred percent. Yeah. And you must also feel the same way of like Aaron describing, like being reticent to make architecture decisions, probably the same feeling on investment decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you know this. We're looking at a lot of companies, but the rate of change is just so dramatic right now. And a lot of companies that are getting built and building really cool stuff are building on quicksand. Things that are evolving so rapidly, things that are soon will become just buttons or features on from one of the incumbents. You know, you could be fairly exposed and you know that very quickly that you're exposed. I think we've been pretty cautious. Yeah. Go ahead. You say something? Well, I was going to just build on the incumbent point. I think the sort of analogies are always tough because the circumstances that you're currently in, you know, sort of are different from when the analogous period happened previously. So like when the web first emerged, there was a massive opportunity for basically anybody to build anything because now you have a completely new paradigm. There was nothing built for anything that could really port into the web. So we had lots of value creation of the Googles and the PayPals of the world, you know, and Amazons because nothing had 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 a similar kind of dynamic. Now, you know, 20 years later, after those kinds of services have gotten to scale with AI, there's a lot of things that AI is better at when it already has data to access, it already has workflows, it already has interfaces to kind of connect into, which means that that's going to help incumbents in a lot of respects, whether that's a Salesforce and a ServiceNow, Atlassian, Google, you know, ourselves, hopefully at Box. 
So then you have to figure out, okay, what's the dynamic where things are actually disruptive, where there are new markets that an incumbent can't really respond to because commercially, the primary way to think about innovators dilemma, everybody thinks it's about technology. It's not, it's about business models. The incumbent has a dilemma when their business model doesn't allow them or doesn't interest them in entering this new disruptive space. And so you have to kind of like figure out like, well, why would an incumbent not want to do something with AI? And if you're a startup, you shouldn't go after the things where the incumbent will just want to do AI stuff for that space. So you have to find the new markets that really haven't existed before, or where the incumbents have some clear disadvantage by incorporating AI into their product because it just changes their business model in a fundamental way. And so that's obviously for you guys to figure out from a VC standpoint. So it's not going to be like our pitches, it's project management with AI. Like that'd be very hard as a startup because that's a very busy space and everybody in that space can just incorporate AI. So then the question is, what are the new ideas where AI for the first time enables software to do something that no incumbent previously was really going after. And I'm convinced there'll be hundreds or thousands of great ideas in that, but we're just in a few months into this whole experience. Yeah. The conversation you two are having earlier about the 30% annually compounded versus let's just say 80% and burning a bunch of cash. Have you ever thought like, whatever your growth rate is today, wait, could this rejuice and accelerate what we're doing to get back to the early days of our compounding growth rate? Like, do you see the same advantage that incumbents get just getting bigger and actually juice the business? I do. It's, I have, you know, moderated expectations for that only because I actually think that AI will become table stakes in software, less of a thing where like people will make major alternate choices because of AI, because like we're going to have AI and all of our all of the other alternatives to Box will have AI as well. So I think the growth rates, you know, somewhat normalized to that. I think there's a lot of like pure legacy 10, 20 year old technology that you'll get rid of over time and move that to the cloud. We'll benefit from that, certainly. My guess more is that in two years from now, when you're using software as just a professional, you're just going to always expect that there's an AI thing that can help do whatever that software does in an accelerated fashion. And it will just be like a requirement. Like it'd be like, did anybody's growth rate really change over multiple years because of mobile if you had an existing software stack? Probably not really because everybody had mobile. And so it really just allowed us to have another platform that let us reach more people and use software in new ways. And I think that'll be pretty similar in the AI uh, in the AI space. Yeah, and using your mobile analogy, maybe if you don't have AI yeah, you or lose. if you don't have mobile, yeah. like that Facebook got really punished for that back in the day for being late to their mobile strategy. Yeah, exactly. So it's more that the losers will be more obvious than the winners in the sense that a lot of people are going to win relative to if they hadn't participated, but it's going to be that, that just like some companies, if they don't adapt, will totally lose only because I just think that everybody's going to need and have AI built into their software. So I think we're all still figuring out like what's the pricing power of AI? You know, how much can you really charge customers for it? Because the customer is eventually going to know like, okay, well, the price of the GPU is this. And so I think some of that will get kind of competed away as well, for, you know, over time. But we'll, we'll see. Being surprised to the positive was only a good thing. But we also are pragmatic in kind of, you know, what we're looking at from a technology standpoint. Yeah. I, what's your take? You know, as someone who invests in productivity and collaboration software, I get fired up about what the potential is here. It's just going to make all of us more productive, faster, Yep. Yeah. cheaper, just all around. Like it's... Uh, a boon to society, I think. Yeah. Oh. When you see something like this, that's brand new to basically everybody, but probably a small handful of people, and you want to go down the rabbit hole as quickly and efficiently as possible, we can use AI. How did you go about actually learning? Where were your inputs coming from? 
a mix of coincidentally having friends that happen to be in the right spot in AI. Um, Reaching out to your network. Yeah. yeah and maybe just, just having a birthday dinner and having all your friends talk about <laughs> AI. That, that, that helps. What that, do you mean? That, like a dinner uh, table question? Aaron had a b- birthday earlier in the year and it, it was 30 people and there was supposed to be one topic of conversation and everybody had to go around the room talking about AI yeah. and their thoughts. And Welcome to my birthday. Yes, <laughs> that was in fact the birthday. So, um, uh, so I, I do tend to alter dinner conversations based on the tech industry trend of, of the moment. Um, so, you know, getting lots of input from people. In the case of AI, I mean, it's a huge boon to, I think, the global developer ecosystem that there's so much on, like, just YouTube. So probably for about six months, every night before bed, I watched an hour of somebody going in deep on LLMs and different architectures and, you know, just watching everything you can consume on the topic and then trying to build a, a mental model for what, what will work, what won't, et cetera. How about you? How are you learning? Same you thing? That, a lot of reading, but I think we also get the benefit from our founders yep. who to come talk to us every day. Yeah. So we're, uh, we get educated. You've I'd outsourced say, to all of us. To humans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like the opposite. We yeah. do the, do, yeah. outsource it. No, but, but seriously, like, you know, that's our job is yep. to meet with great founders. And, you know, we come in with a prepared mind and things we want to learn about. And we get to decide, you know, here's like the sort of people we want to spend time with. And so, yeah, truthfully, like, you know, amongst the, the conversations we have internally in our partnership, and there are folks who have very uh, level of expertise around these topics, and then it's founders, and then, you know, you do your own reading. And I think that's the sort of the grounding thing about being in our business is that, you know, we, we're all technologists. We love this stuff, like, dearly, deeply, and it's like the best job on earth. And so, just like I think Aaron's among the best uh, in terms of founders and CEOs who stays very current on on everything from AI and Vision Pro to <laughs> NFTs. Is your wife, when you're going home, like down the rabbit hole, like, dude. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me right now? 100%. <laughs> the amount of time she's told me, please stop talking about this topic or tweeting about it is, I've ruined a number of family <laughs> vacations. We were in Cabo and we had to come up with some AI strategy stuff. And the amount of times at dinner, I'd just be like, but what do you think about if we, <laughs> is there, if we had, if we do this one thing, would you, what do you think? And she's just like, we're on vacation. Can we please, can we just talk about anything else other than AI right now? <laughs> yeah, so, she's very patient. Very patient, <laughs> extremely patient. Um, it feels to me just sitting across from you, Parker from Rippling, who um, obviously who you're involved with. Thanks to Aaron. Thanks to Aaron? First time I ever met Parker was through Aaron, but yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. Well, one of the th- analogies that he uses is that business is like playing his favorite sport. And maybe he took this from McInnes, but he talks about it in the way that he's like, I love it. Like to your point about going home and talking about AI and stuff, you both strike me as like, this is just fun. Does it feel that way to you? Like there's no way you're going to quit this thing because why would you do that? Is you having way too much fun doing it? You guys feel that way? Always. From day one. I mean, I think I became an engineer, came to Silicon Valley for yeah. this exact reason to go to be the leading edge of where, what technology can do for society. And so, and we get to do that. Yeah. There's this funny feeling, which is so growing up, you know, when you're younger, let's say middle school, high school, whatnot, I've found maybe five or so people that I felt were like, like me and kind of in quotes. And that actually many of them happened to be then ultimately the co-founders box. So, but like people were like, like for some weird reason, the two of us want to talk about the internet for like five hours. If you were in high school in like 2001, not that many people want to just like hang out and literally talk about the internet. That's just not what you do. Like you talk about like 
other things like TV shows and music and the sports game, you don't talk about the internet at like a meta level. And so I, I found the friends that that wanted to do that. And again, they happened to help create Box, which is cool. And so now I've got these, you know, longtime friends that we get to hang out with, uh, you know, over the years and build things and talk about stuff. Moving to Silicon Valley, it's like all of the five people from all the high schools everywhere in the world moved here. And you're just like, oh my God, like you have the same level of passion for this topic. Like where like you, like at 11.30 PM, just want to be texting about <laughs> virtual reality. Like this is like, I mean, it's incredible because this might it'd be like if you really, were really into basketball and then you move to like a basketball town and like, <laughs> and like everybody just wants to talk about the sports scores and who just got drafted. That's what Silicon Valley is like. It's like you live in basketball town and, or football town or, you know, quilting town, but it's technology town. And so at the dinner party, you're just talking about like, well, what do you think happens to jobs because of AI and what LLM, you know, are you most excited about? And it's just like, this is just like the chosen hobby and profession that, I get excited about Moon gets excited about all of our collective friends get excited about. And so it's like, yeah, you could just do this other than like family stuff. Like you could do this a lot of, of your time. Yeah. And it's going to sound totally insane well to almost anybody. So, but like, it, and it, again, it sounds like something where like you'd want some like therapy for, but for some reason it's just an unending supply of energy for this stuff. Yeah. I feel bad when I am at the office and yeah. I forget that there's supposed to be pleasantries about other things, but I'm so excited to talk shop. Yeah. Maybe it's not specifically technology related, but just yeah. talk about work because yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. I reflect back and I'm like, was I rude? You're like, I didn't say. <laughs> I didn't. How's your friend? How's yeah, your family? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just like, so, really nice. I was like so excited to like, yeah. go, did you see that email? You know, we got to get all over that. Right, you know, like, right. I just get excited about it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely, it's, we're, it's a we're, blessing. We're definitely all pretty weird. So, yeah. um, but uh, well, dude, I appreciate you guys doing this. Yeah, Super fun. Thank Could've you, gone for hours. Um, Thanks for coming out. I conclude all these things the same way. The first, are you hiring? Are there any key roles that you're struggling to hire, that you're excited to hire, that you want to shout out using this platform? Yeah, we, we are hiring. It will not come as a surprise like people that are really good at AI. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, I say that somewhat facetiously and somewhat seriously. Like, it actually turns out that the good news in this space is like, the deep AI model experts, we're going to work with all the different AI models. So we actually care more about like distributed systems, backend engineers for AI as opposed to like, like, we're not, you know, we don't need anybody to go train a model right now. But AI focus areas in product and engineering are definitely great. And then we do a lot on go to market. As you can tell from the conversation, we are open for business. So I welcome anybody who sees a, a sales or go to market job on the website. We have a lot of customers we want to go and bring our software to. When you hear the word grit, who do you think of what comes to mind? How would you answer that? Grit? Yeah. I don't know if there's a single individual as much as just, I think of founders just as a general category. I mean, there's like hundreds that, you know, if you had to really, I don't even know how you'd stack rank them. There's just founders everywhere that are just, they're cranking and building their companies. And it's cool to know some, and it's cool to watch what everybody's doing. I think of Aaron, truly. Even if he wasn't sitting in front of me. Thank you. I think we also both, we probably both think of like Parker and- Parker. Jeremy, shout out. Shout um, out to Jeremy Stoppelman. Just, uh, you know, these longtime founders that just, we're all cranking. Yeah. yeah well said. Fellas, I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all. <laughs>